Welcome to Consensus, a podcast from Census Technologies. Welcome back to Consensus Podcast, brought to you by Census Technologies. Today, we'll be speaking with Cheryl Etter, the Acting Chief Nurse of Periop Services and Serial Processing Services from the Bay Pines VA in Florida. Their Serial Processing Department is the recipient of the Ron Hesch Mission First Award from this year's CTUP Connect 2023. Welcome, Cheryl. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vanessa. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. I'm excited to have you. Um, To start out with, would you please give us a little bit more of an introduction and talk about your role at your facility? Sure. Um, I've worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs for about 25 years. Uh, Initially, I was an operating room nurse and segued into a job during my master's program, actually, segued into a program for sterile processing education. I was probably maybe the second or third sterile processing educator in the VA. So it's been quite a while back. Um, My current role involves executive oversight for the operating room, the GI lab, ambulatory surgery, recovery room, and sterile processing service. And that's in two campuses. It's a huge responsibility. And it's one that I couldn't perform at all unless we had built a very strong leadership team. Um, For SPS, our day-to-day operational leadership is managed by a gentleman by the name of Aaron Cornett. He's our section chief. He brings a level of expertise to our organization that we did not have before. Wow. Uh, It sounds like you're busy, but Mm -hmm. you have the great support of of a wonderful team to help you get through it. I do. (laughs) It's awesome. All right. Well, we are just going to uh, dive right in to discussing what led your team to being the recipient of the Ron Hesch Award this year. Okay. So in your nomination, it mentioned that six years ago, Bay Pines faced incredible obstacles. You had infrastructure issues, HVAC failures, staff shortages, and mountains of paper documentation struggles. Can you kind of tell us a little more about what what it was like at that point in time. I can. It was rough initially. My chief and I had come on board at a time when a lot of the leadership of our facility retired at about the same time. They had come on board the same time, worked there for 35, 40 years, and they all retired within months of each other. So there was a lot of chaos going on. There were a lot of moving parts, first of all, um, just to make our team run. Uh, then there are a lot of key variables to consider to make the team run efficiently. First, we had to identify all those obstacles, see what was keeping the team from working well. Uh, and one of the big problems was due to promotions and retirements, which are celebratory in, na- in nature, we were left with mm-hmm. enormous gaps um, by those departments. Mm-hmm. Finding a body, a warm body, is easy. <laughs> But finding and hiring the right person or people can be challenging. Um, During this time, there were a lot of moving pieces. Uh, Things were not running in a very fluid manner. Everybody was working very hard, but there weren't enough of them. (laughs) We needed those missing pieces to get back where we knew we needed to be and should be in terms of performance. Um, It's amazing that we we didn't have a lot of... um, 
issues with bio burden and with canceled surgeries and things like that, because we really had very low staffing and very new leadership. Um, my chief at the time, uh, Jason Stuckey, and myself went into search mode for just the best people to fill those key leadership positions. We worked with our top leadership to facilitate implementation of a full SPS renovation. We created an education and advancement plan for SPS. And above all, we changed the culture from one where staff were kind of beat down. You know, they didn't speak mm -hmm. up. Um, they didn't let you know when something was wrong. If, if an SOP was incorrect, they didn't tell anybody, you know, and the people yeah. writing the SOPs weren't the people doing the work. So they didn't know Ooh. that it was wrong. Right. So we had to change that. Yeah. We had to implement field testing of SOPs to get a couple of key high performers to go through an SOP and say, does this really work? And is this the best way to do it? Um, that staff has become a group of professionals who speak up when something's not right. As a matter of fact, our staff huddles can be exhausting. <laughs> but that's okay. that's okay because I would rather hear about something that's not important than miss something that is. You know, so, yep. so we want them to, to, to step up and speak up. Um, one of the big changes we made was to convert a supervisor position into a section chief of SPS operations. When nursing took over sterile processing back in 2008, uh, a lot of VAs opted to put a registered nurse in that chief role. Registered nurses can do the chief role, but the thing is, is day-to-day -day operations are a mystery to a lot of nurses. Um, I'm mm -hmm. kind of a purple unicorn in that I started out as an educator and so I went into SPS and I said, orient me like you would a tech. So I, I learned about Great. SPS from the didactic, you know, the book learning and also the um, hands-on part. It's like telling somebody to drive a car after they've read the driver's manual. You know, you really have to practice driving the car a little first. Right. So, um, yeah. When we converted that position into an SPS section chief of operations, Aaron's role, we did we created a career ladder that we didn't have before. It stopped at supervisor until we did that. Mm -hmm. So um, that was a big plus. Um, other small things that we did, uh, we began handing out our leadership supported this, and it was terrific. But uh, something called an on the spot award. It's a fifty dollar card for staff that get caught doing good. Um, hmm. We have great catch awards for staff who prevented patient harm by quick action. And we increased nominations for our department for employee of the month. Um, and that award comes with a very generous, it's like a $750 cash award for people that win employee oh. of the month. And I've had, I've had two of my SPS employees get that in the last year. Um, our uh, chief also had an innovative program called Chat with the Chief, and it was protected Vegas time. Um, they would go into the office and tell him whatever was on their mind, and it was protected. They couldn't be, you know, couldn't get in trouble for it. None of that. Mm -hmm. They just were able to say, I'm concerned about this. This is a problem for me. Um, and it, it just changed the culture. I could talk about this yeah. all day, but I know you have other questions. So. 
<laughs> that is fantastic that your your leadership from your department to your facility has has really supported you guys supporting your technicians mm-hmm. in in a lot of diverse ways. Um, so the cool part was that I I had a lot of history with the organization as a staff nurse, mm-hmm. as the educator. So they weren't afraid to talk to me. They were accustomed to me kind of being their peer. And I mm-hmm. understood what their problems were. And when Jason came on board, he was very young, very bright. He was willing to listen to any idea I had. And you would not expect for two people with such different backgrounds to have been such good partners. He is younger than two of my children. Um, but we had just a fantastic hand in glove relationship and that really helped us a lot. I mean, it really did help us a lot. I would encourage anyone that's trying to institute a culture change, get in there in the middle of it and see where your staff are struggling. So that's it. Off my soapbox. <laughs> that's that's a it's a pretty awesome soapbox. Like that's that's great. Um, yeah, yeah. To to really understand your team and to want them to have you know, like you said, the culture shift. You have to see where they're coming from. Yep. And that's great that you guys put that work in to your team instead of just sweeping it under the rug. You talked about improvements that you all have been making within your team over time. Are there still areas where there's work going on that that maybe those positive improvements you're aiming for aren't quite there yet? So when when I first became an educator there, no one was um, at the time ISHM, now HSPA or CBSPD certified. Um, in within the first year of implementing a formal education program, we went from about 40 percent of staff that were they were asked to to sit for the level two, the VA's uh, certification program. Only about 40 percent passed it. So we went from 40 percent to 100 percent in 18 months. And. Since certification, education, and training are not a legal requirement for sterile processing in most states, you know, the knowledge level of sterile processing technicians can be alarmingly variable. Um, Mm -hmm. So with VHA standard basic knowledge, the level one program, we have all of our employees now doing that within 90 days of hire. We weren't catching those for a long time Mm -hmm. because we didn't have a way to keep up with it. Now we do. Um, but it's a good start, but, you know, everything that SPS does can't be captured in an initial orientation or a 12 part, you know, certification exam. Yeah. So as part of our competency validation, our education and trainers give about 20 to 30% of SPS specific, uh, excuse me, 20 to 30 hours or more of SPS specific education and training every year. Uh, they have access to certification training manuals, but I still want to see more of our staff, not just with the VA certification, but with HISPA, HSPA, especially the certified endoscope reprocessing. I think that's extremely necessary. And, you know, because we still have a long ways to go with salary for our staff, 
they don't want to pay for a certification. And I get that. I understand that. You know, so we've been working on programs to help offset that that cost. Um, at our at our regular huddles, um, staff are encouraged to bring up and discuss their reprocessing concerns. Every time there's a process change, every time we change an SOP, almost without exception, when we begin to teach and train about that, staff will ask a question that makes us say, wait a minute, our SOP is wrong. We've got to fix this. Or our process is not right. Our flow is not correct. Um, you know, so bringing things to the level of where the work is being done, as, as they say in Lean, in the Gemba, getting your information from your subject matter experts, and those are not the people in the office. Those are people in decon. They're the people in prep, right? Those are your SMEs on, on uh, task-based processes. You know, so they make questions, they ask us questions that make us reevaluate, improve, refine the process. Um, in continuous improvement, we have to reinforce continuously with direct supervisors that we listen to our subject matter experts. No one is more expert than the people that do it. Um, we are undergoing a full renovation of our department. It's huge. It's like a $19 million complete gut, right? And we're doing phases. We're going to be in mobile units and all of that. But when we first started the plans, we've got all these people in the room talking about what needs to be done and not a single one of them except me had ever worked in decon, had ever worked in prep, had ever <laughs> done that sort of oh, work. man. So we put the blueprints up on the wall and we got input from the staff. Um, we had a company do a uh, VR video of the walkthrough of the department mm -hmm. and had staff uh, participate in that during sterile processing week a couple of years ago. Um, and they gave us a ton of input. Um, it resulted in major plan changes that will impact, it'll impact flow in the department for decades to come um, once we get that thing up and running. Um, the inclusion of frontline SMEs into performance improvement resulted in a project that decreased our number of sterilization cycles by two thirds. It took nearly a year. It was extremely data intensive, way outside of their wheelhouse. But I showed them where to go. They took it and ran with it. It was 100% staff driven. That is incredible. I I love that that you looped in your your regular technicians who are day to day, hands on with the instruments for so many massive changes. That's that right there is something that doesn't happen. Uh, on a normal basis at all. Well, I think that it's so because great. I was Congrats a staff nurse. I was a staff nurse for 18 years before I went into leadership. So yeah. I knew I knew what it was like to have people making decisions that affected my practice and not always in a positive way without getting any input from the people who were doing the work. Yeah, you know, it's, nope. it's, I, it's I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I know me personally, um, changes were made or, or when they opened up, uh, the, the new sterile processing at my old facility. And it was, it was, you know, something to adjust to, or as we started using it. And then eventually staff started saying, I wish they'd asked us about mm -hmm. where they put this, the way they did this flow, 
why didn't they get our input? We're the ones who are stuck with it, you know? Yeah. And then there's the complaints, you know, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm sure there are sterile processing professionals all over the place who wish that they'd had that opportunity that you guys gave your staff. That's fantastic. So you mentioned utilizing data to help your technicians um, lead a change in your department, and that was the reduction in number of sterile sterilization cycles that you were using. Can you kind of ex- elaborate a little bit more on using your electronic instrument tracking system? You have Sensitrack on on what exactly you showed them, how they used it mm-hmm. to get the results that that you all wanted. Well, I showed them how to pull sterilization reports, for one thing, how to pull a report that tells us uh, what instruments were going into what cycles, right? So they were able to go through that. What we wanted to do was look at every single cycle that was not 440, which is kind of your baseline sterilization cycle. And then Mm -hmm. all the instruments that went into different cycles. We created a database that on one page, these are all the ones that are on 440. We don't have to touch them. These are all the other ones. So they, the group, there were six of them, um, went through all the one source docs and discovered that a lot of them had been revalidated since the instrument was put into SenseTrack and could now be done at 440. So the ones that give us the most trouble, and this is this is not a problem in a lot of SPDs in the country because most SPDs don't do dental, but in the VA, SPS does dental, and their IFUs are squirrely. They are yes, they are crazy European standards and this, that, and the other, and you've got everything's in, uh, you know, the European like. Some of them were like 18-minute 273 cycles for Crutchfield Jakob. Mm-hmm. Like if something is made in France or or the UK, they would do a Crutchfield Jakob cycle, and we're not doing that. <laughs> you know? yeah. So the other thing we had to do was go through and uh, find alternate vendors. Like the ones that there was no wiggle room, we mm-hmm. began replacing those instruments with an alternate vendor that fit in the 440. You know, so the staff had to pull all that data together. It probably took maybe 18 months to two years because they're doing this extra. This is on top of their job. They're they're yeah. they're doing this stuff extra. So um, it was it was a terrific day whenever we could start eliminating 10 minute cycles and five mm-hmm. minute 275 cycles. And, you know, because all these things, a lot of these things have been revalidated. We also had our educators going back to the company and asking for alternate instructions, alternate validated instructions, because a lot of times they'll send something to one source and, you know, they don't have they don't have a nickel in giving one source all the time, you know, accurate information. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they'll send them an outdated IFU. So a couple of times we've been able to go back to the company and say, is this the best you can do for us? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and we've been able to, and actually even uh, forward that on up to one source. So 
lots and lots and lots of stuff, good stuff happening whenever you're able to use every person in your service to the max of their potential. Every, everyone has different giftings, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. You know, some people are visual and some people are tactile and some people, you know, some people are cerebral, but <laughs> every single one of those um, types of people can benefit your organization. You just have to understand who they are, where they are. Um, but we couldn't have done it without the SenseTrack software. I mean, we, we just couldn't have done it because it, it feeds, um, it feeds change with evidence, right? When you're able to pull a report, you know, if you go to a surgeon and say, I want to get rid of this set because you guys never use it. He's going to say, no, we use, we use it all the time. <laughs> but in Sensitrack, yeah. I can show that the tray hasn't been used in eight years. <laughs> yep. You know, well, that's the day that they decide to start using it just to be ornery. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we had that. We had that happen whenever I I orchestrated uh, taking about thirty clamps out of a 200, uh, 200 instrument double tray. It was a tray A and Oof. tray B, and um, mm-hmm. for the next six or eight cases, they asked for those clamps. <sighs> yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Or, or, ornery isn't is it's it's at every single level of the organization. <laughs> Can be. It just manifests in different ways. <laughs> so I do have um, I do have some improvements that our leadership advocated for, um, you know, just to really make the department shine because leadership mm-hmm. leadership has a big role in this. But one of the biggest things is access to all the instructions for use. Uh, through one source, and that that is VA wide. You can go on. Mm-hmm. You can go on to any VA computer, log on to one source, and you're automatically into it without no password, no anything. Um, access to the manufacturer's instructions for use is crucial. I mean, it's critical to safe reprocessing because the tech doing the work then has access to what the manufacturer said. So. If I have a tech on uh, on midnight shift at 3 a.m. that's reprocessing something that he or she hasn't done in a while, and the SOP looks a little squirrely to them, they can go straight to the manufacturer's instructions for use and see exactly what the manufacturer validated. I mean, people are humans and they make mistakes, you know, so SOPs can get messed up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's helpful to them, and it also respects them. It respects their ability to read and understand and use critical thinking skills. Um, you know, which doing doing all these bullet point instructions facility, you know, for a facility doesn't always do that. It doesn't always convey respect that I have a sterile processing professional here that can read the manufacturer's instructions for use and follow them. I mean, some of them are nuts. I mean, some of them are crazy, right? I, mean, I was just going to say, yeah, some of them, endoscopy, even if you- <laughs> endoscopy IFUs are, are utterly insane. Um, you know, they are bananas. SOP yeah. just needs to be done for that just to simplify the 118 <laughs> steps that need to be done, right, to reprocess yep. an endoscope. Um, since track software um, has been really helpful to us because the staff had a hard time initially 
finding the SOPs that they were looking for. We didn't have a very good uh, naming convention for them uh, or, or even uh, the numbering convention was not good. So one of the things that we did that was very helpful to our staff is we added the facilities SOP number to each count sheet. So if they, if they did need to find it, all the, is it, everybody knows how to pull up the count sheet. You know, you just scan the tray and your count sheet comes up. And at the top, it's SOP number 2119. And they can go back to that SOP and make sure you know, to just like to refresh their knowledge or whatever. Uh, I'm, I, I can't remember if I'm supposed to do this or this, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that's very helpful. It gives them a roadmap when they need additional clarification for something that's exceedingly complex or they haven't done in a while. Um, leadership on our national and local levels continue to advocate for better pay, career ladders, creation of quality insurance section, in sterile processing, recruitment, retention, and a place at the table. Um, everybody yes. deserves that. Everybody deserves that. Um, the pay scales for VA sterile processing service are not going to be fixed quickly. We've been working on them for years and years and years. So what our um, national has done is to create some critical skills incentive money and special salary and recruitment incentives um, that are mm -hmm. beginning to start paying staff for what they're, for the level of criticality and um, complexity that the job entails. Uh, sterile processing service local leadership um, at our facility has veto power over reprocessable devices that come into the healthcare facility. When it goes nice. through the committee, sterile processing has to sign off on it. Um, so many things yep. slipped through the cracks under names that didn't seem like they might be reusable medical equipment. So I have to review refrigerators, too, just to make sure that it doesn't have a reprocessable component. But that, that in itself is huge. Uh, we were not equipped for the robot. And Oof. surgery wants the robot. Yeah. So we can't have the robot because we can't reprocess the robot yet. Now we're working. We're working with uh, industry. You know, with VA partners. Um, we have another VA pretty close to us, like 30 miles, um, that we're working on, so that we can go ahead and get our robotics program started. But um, the fact that it wasn't stuff doesn't show up at our doorstep, expecting us to reprocess. Um, yeah. it, it all has to be approved by sterile processing. Years ago, facilities bought what they wanted and expected sterile processing to clean it and sterilize it. We didn't have mm -hmm. high reviews. We didn't have the right yeah. equipment. Yeah. Do it anyway. That's no longer the case. <laughs> um, our technicians from brand new techs up to supervisors have the authority to refuse to receive instrumentation that shows up at the door that hasn't been properly vetted. They just say, nope, sorry. We, we won't accept it. We will not accept it. And and they all know that they have the authority to do that. Um, the other big accomplishment is the approval of a multi-million dollar uh, renovation. Uh, our campus is going to be state-of-the-art. It's going to be, I think it's going to be the best one in the country. And one of the reasons <laughs> our techs had so much input in it. Um, it's going to take a while, but it's um, going to be wonderful. 
I mean, it's just going to be wonderful. Uh, sorry to say I'll be retired by the time it opens, but I hope that they'll invite me back for the uh, ribbon cutting. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, just make sure you stay in touch with them and, oh, and I'm sure they will. Yeah, they, they, they got my digits. <laughs> they're going to be the day after you retire, they're going to be calling you with a question. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you said that, uh, that your, your technicians have that veto power at the door for something new. Has that actually happened yeah. where? Oh yeah. The, yeah. How did that go over? So whenever you have a new, a new vendor that doesn't realize that we mean what we say and we say what we mean, <laughs> we give them our loaner policy. We, we hand mm -hmm. them our loaner policy uh, when they, the first time they ever come to the facility and we have them sign it, mm -hmm. that they've read it and they understand it. Um, so I guess the last time that it happened, and it's so funny because we've, we've got our surgeons trained pretty well. We had a <laughs> vendor come to the door and say, Dr. So-and-so wants this for his case tomorrow. Turns out Dr. So-and-so didn't know a thing about it. This, <gasps> this vendor wanted to, um, wanted to spring this surprise on the doctor and have them try it out without it having ever been vetted. And the technician says, we don't have this in our system. We haven't been trained on this. We haven't gotten a request from the operating room for this. Uh, we're not going to receive it. So they said, well, let me talk to your supervisor. And the supervisor said the same thing. And he says, well, let, let me talk to your boss. And that was me. And I said, Oh, what, what do you think you're trying to do here? Are, are you trying to circumvent a policy of the United States federal government? <laughs> Ooh, oh. I'm not afraid to pull that. I'm not afraid to pull the federal government card. I do it. To, yep. I do it when I get spam calls on my government phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, they all know you, you don't, you don't receive anything that's not in the system not been vetted, not been trained on, because the the um, vendors have to do an in-service with our staff yep. for every new piece of stuff that comes through the door before we process it. And they have That's to get fantastic. it to us in 48 hours. They have to get yep. it to it. And that was a struggle, too. Um, the very first time uh, my chief at the time canceled an elective case because the loaner was late, it was quite the kerfuffle, <laughs> but I'm sure everybody we freaked let out. top leadership know what the problem was and how we were not getting compliance and they had to change. So we went from about a 48% non-compliance with our 48 hour policy to about a 4% non-compliance rate for our policy. Wow. Now, we did have to do consignment agreements. We had to, and that mm -hmm. took a long time. We had to develop consignment agreements so that we could keep at least one of the most commonly used loaners on the shelf. And then they bring in another one for a backup. And that one doesn't have to be within 48 hours. The backup one you know, we, we just sterilize it for a backup in case something gets contaminated. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. 
yeah, our, our compliance rate's gone through the roof. We had to spend a lot of money, though. And, and we had to ruffle some feathers. And you can't be afraid of that. You just can't be afraid of it. I've had doctors come in my office and stand over me screaming. And I'm just about to sit there. And I say, okay. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm doing my job. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm just an employee, just like you. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're going to follow policy as long as I'm sitting in this seat. So. Yep. Oh, well, hopefully whomsoever takes your chair after you retire uh, is is just as firm in that belief. Well, you know, and I and I think that he will be. I've already met him. And once he realizes that his leadership backs him, I mean, mm-hmm. all, all the way to our um, to our chief of staff. I mean, I have a relationship with the chief of staff. That's unheard of in a lot of facilities for um, a sterile processing chief to be able to shoot an email or a team's message to the chief of staff and say, you know, I'm really having a problem um, with this surgeon throwing away instruments or this surgeon not holding the vendor to our loaner policy. And he supports me, you know. That's it's yeah, it's it's really good when you're when your top leadership understands how crucial it is that sterile processing gets it right. It makes mm-hmm. it a lot easier to make the hard decisions. Yep. You uh, you make sure you, you stick to your stick to your argument and present them with the facts. I hear horror stories of, um, of DAs where where the manager um tried to enforce policy and was threatened with termination. You know, not really? not in the VA, but <laughs> in other facilities, you know, in in outside facilities. Uh, you know, where they That's were terrible. like, you know, you you've got to figure out a way to make this happen. This doctor makes us a lot of money. You know, and and that's where things get dangerous. Yes. If your yes. policy says one thing and you're doing another, you're in more danger than if you didn't have a policy at all. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, kudos to your team for sticking up for themselves and standing by the policies and making it better for the veteran population that you guys support. Well, thank you. So you've managed to breeze through quite a few of the questions just in the course of conversation. Um, which is fine. This is fun. <laughs> uh, one of the uh, one of the things brought up in your award nomination was how you and your team reacted to the COVID nineteen pandemic and how you the process that you utilized for reprocessing N ninety five masks. So can you just tell us about what you all had to do to support, you know, your direct patient care teams. Sure. Um, you know, looking back on COVID, I couldn't be more proud. I, I, you know, we were all freaking out. I mean, none of us have ever gone through anything like this before. Um, but something, a switch just flipped in our staff. 
you know, they just they just became an army. As soon as um, my chief and my section chief, Aaron, and myself showed them that we were willing to lead and do some crazy stuff. I mean, they were like, yeah, let's go, <laughs> you know, let's go. <laughs> so when the COVID shutdowns occurred, of course, we stopped elective surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were getting new instructions and directions on a daily basis. So the staff had to display enormous flexibility and adaptability in their assignments because we weren't doing much reprocessing at all. Uh, we weren't, we were doing no elective dental, no elective surgery. Um, and then we found that N95 masks, their availability was in jeopardy. Um, so we started doing some research on what we could do. What they had initially done um, was what a lot of places had done. They would use their mask, put it in a paper bag for three days, and then use it again and recycle them that way for a little while. Um, I just felt like we could do better and did some research. Um, so I, I drew up a room with a Tyvek walls because we had a UV robot and I put clotheslines okay. in it. <laughs> so we had clotheslines and the little plastic uh, clothespins that you get at the hobby shop. Mm-hmm. And so working with national recommendations for that, I think it was the University of Kansas that had done this during a flu epidemic and they couldn't get enough um they couldn't get enough N95s and they had put together this process to decontaminate masks. So SPS, we developed a procedure where they collected, labeled, decontaminated and stored the masks. We didn't give them back to them right away because we never completely ran out, but we were preparing. So what the the end users would do is if at the end of the day, their mask didn't have any gross soil on it, they would write their name and their mm-hmm. unit on it put it in a brown paper bag, write their name and their unit on it, and SPS would collect it. We would bring them in, put them on the clothesline, zap them, and put them in a white paper bag with their name and unit on it, which the white paper bag indicated that they had been decontaminated. Um, The reflective wall room was just awesome, though. I mean, it was just, it was so space age. Um, later after there was an emergency use authorization for hydrogen peroxide, they Mm -hmm. made critical pivots again to implement that new process. Um, we, uh, moved one of our V pros out by the decontamination area and, um, and started, you know, started zapping them. And again, we labeled them with their names and their unit. You know, so that, I mean, because with the vaporized hydrogen peroxide, anybody could have used the mask, but it just made mm-hmm. people feel a little, I don't want to wear a mask somebody else has worn. You know, so yep. we made sure that they would get their own mask back if they ever had to need, use it. Um, besides the mask projects, SPS jumped in to help do COVID screening because we, we set up mm-hmm. big um big shelters over the driveways in and out of the facility and screened every car that came through. And it took dozens of people to do that for all of our entrances. Uh, They helped out with sitter needs. And Mm -hmm. actually some of them still volunteer for overtime doing sitter work. They, they, they were like, I kind of like doing a little patient care. (laughs) Um, And, and a lot of other typically non SPS uh, activities 
to meet the mission and get us successfully through the pandemic. Big, big, big part of the team. They've just, and the same with like hurricanes, um, hurricane preparedness, um, helping. And we've done two evacuations in 11 months in Southwest Florida. Wow. Hurricanes. And SPS pe- played a critical role in moving patients, moving equipment, um, securing instrumentation, um, just whatever they could do to fill those roles. I'm so proud of them. Well, the more the more we go through this conversation, the more I understand why you guys were the perfect fit for this award, because it seems like there is no obstacle. There is no hurdle that your team is not willing to approach and conquer That's the truth. In, in just over just support of your veteran popula- population. That is fantastic. Thank you. So we're we're working on coming to a close for our conversation, but I do have one uh, couple final questions. One of which is Cheryl, you were actually friends with Ron Hesch before his passing. Um, would you be willing to tell us about his vision of care for veterans and if it impacted how you have approached your own uh, your own duties with sterile processing and your VA? I loved Ron. <laughs> I was I was a nurse educator back in 2008 2009 uh, when I first met him during our Sensitrack implementation. Um, mm-hmm. Ron had a passion to assure that his brothers and sisters in arms, because he was a military veteran, um, had access to safely reprocessed instrumentation. I mean, it was just so evident in the amount of diligence that he applied to every project. We didn't have an easy rollout for SenseTrack. Staffing was not everything it should be. We didn't have a ton of people who were computer literate. And there Mm -hmm. was just a lot of resistance to it. You know, people wanted to, they they don't like change. People don't really like change. So we had a difficult rollout. But his dedication to the mission has just had long-reaching effects in our in our ability to document and access data. And that helps us ensure we're in a state of continuous improvement. We can look at where we were last year. We can look at where we were yesterday. We can, you know, and then we can project from that. Um, I often say you cannot improve an unmeasured process. And Ron taught us how to measure our processes using, um, using the software. Um, he understood it. He understood that you couldn't improve with, unless you were measuring. And he helped us get a better to the better point of data reliability. Um, I've never met a single soul that knew Ron that doesn't deeply feel his absence, um, both as a trusted advisor um, and as a friend. I'm, I miss him. I miss him a lot. Sounds like you had a just a beautiful relationship with him that covered multiple aspects of your life. Yeah, he was a cool guy. <laughs> he was a very cool guy. Well, I appreciate you taking this time to talk about the journey of your department and your facility and how it connected to Ron Hesch. Would you have some final words of wisdom to pass along to anyone who may be struggling to overcome obstacles or feel like they lack resources to to reach these lofty goals that they envision. So if you work in sterile processing, 
you're struggling with a difficult environment or lack of resources. That's just part of the game. Um, you know, our, our, um, our profession is changing so rapidly that there's always uh, something shinier, newer and better. Or, you know, um, you've also always got that one person or two people that um, spread uh, disillusionment like a like mayo on a hoagie. I mean, just, let's put it out there. <laughs> but a few, a few things I would pass along um, that I've learned over my 30, 40, almost 40 years in nursing is disengaged people are very hard to work with. And they're even harder to manage. Um, when I first began working in sterile processing, as I said before, I oriented to all the areas partly for my own knowledge and partly to develop relationships with staff and help them re-engage in their mission of sterile processing. Um, it's hard to be disengaged when the person you're working for is working with you side by side and shows you that they care about your success um, as it relates to the department's success. Um, number two would be to recognize achievement constantly little, big, whatever, recognize achievement, and not just your own staff. Um, I can't tell you how many staff and other services will bend over backwards to help our service because I've sent kudos about them to their boss or given them an on-the-spot award. I've even nominated people in other departments for Employee of the Month. Um, and they'll do anything for me because they know I care about them too and not just about what they can do for me. Um, don't ever go to leadership without data to back up what you want. Uh, learn how to use the reports features in your instrument tracking system. And if you don't know how to do it, uh, the help desk is a phone call away. They'll, they'll show you how to extract the data that you need to get what you need. Um, also, don't ever go to leadership without a problem unless you have a solution, uh, at least something and possibly even an implementation plan, okay? Um, leaders, and so I, I used to think that to be a boss would be to sit in an office and just tell people what to do all day. It's so hard, guys. Being at this at this level, and I'm just kind of a mid-level, I'm not up there in the, in the Pentad realm, um, there are so many moving parts and so many competing priorities and so many disasters going on at any one moment in time that you need to tell them what they need to know, the evidence to back up what you're asking for and what you think a good solution would be because you're their subject matter expert, right? Just like your SPS techs are your subject matter expert, you are your leadership's subject matter expert. Um, my, my, my other favorite thing to say is I'm going to be a rock in your shoe until you take care of this. <laughs> that's, that's a good analogy. With all of those multiple competing priorities, um, what you're asking for might fall off the radar. So be a rock in their shoe. Top leadership has multiple competing priorities. If you don't get an answer, try again. And again, and again, and again, because if it's important, you've got to keep bringing it up. 
after a while, they're going to be tired of hearing it and they'll act on it. <laughs> <laughs> this lady's crazy and she doesn't leave us alone. Let's yeah. just give her what she wants. <laughs> yeah, she's just like a big old rock in my shoe. And that's... <laughs> I think I think you you dropped some fantastic words of wisdom and some great stories and I love personally I love hearing about the journey that your team has been on over the years to just really be their best selves uh, as it relates to their their patient care their veteran care and and how they're supporting the community it's fantastic what you guys are doing well we could not do it without every single member of our team from the newest tech all the way up to our associate director that has oversight for our sterile processing service. I, I got to tell you, I've worked in places where I didn't have leadership support and it's, and it's miserable at our facility. SPS truly has a place at the table and it's, it's been an honor and a privilege um, to get to serve veterans in this way um, for the last 15 years and gosh, 25 years total working for the Department of Veter Veterans Affairs and then another 15 in the private sector. But uh, it, it's just been the most exciting job I've ever had. Thank you again, Cheryl, for taking the time today to talk to us. For those of you listening, thank you for joining us for another episode of Consensus Podcast. If you want to hear more from Census, go to census.com, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on everything that we're bringing to you. Thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next time.